This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Thank you for joining us on a Tuesday edition of our podcast. Uh, criminal matters just capture our attention. I mean, that's true for me. I guess it's not true for everyone, but many folks are just uh, fascinated. It may not be the right word. I'll just say captivated, captivated by crime. For, I guess for some, it's a fascination. I mean, we're fascinated because we don't understand how people can do things that we consider so evil, I mean, subhuman, so aberrant. Part of it may be for some this latent fear that we all have of stranger crime. Uh, it, it, it doesn't matter to many the statistics, which indicate we're far more likely to be killed by somebody we know than someone we don't. But we don't spend a ton of time. I mean, I didn't spend like a ton of time growing up wondering whether or not one of my three sisters was going to kill me. I probably should have, but I didn't. It's stranger crime. I remember being terrified of riding my bike home from school because I thought someone would kidnap off my bike. Now, I look back on it and I think, well, who in the world would want an 11-year-old kid that doesn't do very well in school and all he wants to do is be outside with his shirt off playing sports? But you don't think logically. I had this fear of being kidnapped by a stranger. Part of it, I think, is as we get older, maybe it's just desire to understand human nature, even as aberrant and abnormal as that human nature may be in a particular fact pattern. So for many people, the Alex Murdoch fact pattern, crime, double homicide, double murder, captured our, I'll include me, our attention. Uh, the facts were certainly unusual in that uh, he had a law degree and no formal criminal history. But as we learned, he did have a criminal history. It just wasn't formal. He had not been convicted yet. But there were allegations, shall we say, to be fair, allegations, drug abuse, uh, which means you had to either steal it or buy it, either of which is crime. Stealing from your clients, stealing from your law partners, both of which are crimes. Embezzlement. And that's what we know. There are insinuations uh, as it relates to other conduct, too, uh, including an employee and a young man whose body was found in the middle of the road. So he did not wake up one morning as an otherwise law-abiding citizen and decide to go on a murderous rampage. He did, as many defendants, at least the ones I prosecuted, did, which is he worked his way up to it. He worked his way up to murder. It was a long trial. Uh, with a really quick verdict. So quick, uh, some have wondered, indeed, some of my own friends have reached out since the verdict came and said, why not seek the death penalty? In fact, Judge Newman, Judge Cliff Newman, correctly noted that it was a death penalty eligible case. And I think, I mean, don't hold me to this, I think Judge Newman also 
you know, alluded to the fact he wasn't saying it should have been salt. But people are. People have. They've asked. So what I want to do today is sort of catalog some of the questions that I have gotten from friends and family since the trial ended and anticipate maybe what some of your questions may be as we uh, kind of put an end to the saga that was the state of South Carolina versus Alex Murdoch. Uh, so on the issue of the death penalty, some have correctly noted the verdict was so quick, perhaps guilt was so certain that maybe a jury might have also given the ultimate punishment, which is death. So I would not draw that conclusion, and I'll tell you why, it, it, for several reasons. In death penalty cases, everything is different. Everything. So let's just start, I guess, kind of with the basics. All killings are not the same. Some are accidents. Some are self-defense. Uh, neither of those would even be crimes. So it's a killing, but it's not a crime. Self-defense, accident. Some killings are what we call manslaughter, which in some states is murder two, but South Carolina doesn't have murder one, murder two, murder three. We have murder, manslaughter, and involuntary manslaughter. Some killings are what we call felony DUI, which is driving under the influence. Those are not prosecuted as murder cases. So all killings are not treated the same under the law, and all murders are not treated the same under the law. So you may ask, well, what is murder? Because, you know, we watch television, we hear the word premeditation a lot, premeditated. That is not a factor in South Carolina for murder. Murder is an unlawful killing with malice aforethought. An unlawful killing. So let's break down as a simple phrase, unlawful killing. We've already referred to the fact that some killings are not even criminal. It's an accident. Um, it's self-defense. So it's an it has murder has to be an unlawful killing with malice. What is malice? Malice is defined as a heart fatally bent on mischief, ill intention, bad intentions, uh, hatred. Uh, malice can be inferred or it can be expressed. Uh, rarely is it expressed. I can't recall doing very many murder cases where the defendant announced ahead of time. I have a heart full of malice and am about to pull the trigger. It doesn't happen that way. So malice can be inferred from conduct. And then you have this word aforethought. Murder is an unlawful killing with malice aforethought. But do not, do not correlate aforethought with premeditation. Aforethought means an instant. I mean, from the time it takes you to stand up, aim your gun, point it at me, and pull the trigger, that is a forethought. It doesn't have to be months and months of planning. It doesn't even have to be minutes and minutes of planning. It is malice, a forethought. And it can arise in an instant, literally an instant. So that's what murder is in South Carolina. And we've already covered the fact that all murders are not even death penalty eligible. So what makes a murder death penalty eligible? Well, it's got to be something more than just murder. It has to be what we call an aggravating circumstance. So it is murder plus something else. That plus something else could be murder in the commission of another crime. Burglary, armed robbery, sexual assault, kidnapping, a murder committed during the commission of another crime is death penalty eligible. And the second, we're going to talk about when you actually would seek it. Right now, 
we are establishing when it's even an option. Murder in the commission of another crime, the killing of a child under a certain age. I think it's 11. I haven't looked at the statute in a while, but whether it's 9, 11, it's a, a killing a child under a certain age, a killing in a public place that exposes the public to danger. I actually did one under that part of the statute. The killing of a police officer, the killing of two or more. So that would be the aggravating circumstance in Alex Murdoch's fact pattern, the killing of two or more. So yes, it is eligible for the death penalty. So you're a prosecutor. I had Alan Wilson, who's the attorney general and in the interest of full disclosure, been a friend for a long time. He actually, before he was the attorney general, he came up when I was a district attorney and prosecuted cases in our courthouse um, for us, uh, cases that we had conflicts on, conflicts in. So I've known uh, General Wilson for a long time. uh, And I asked him last night, I knew why he didn't seek it, but I, I want the viewers, I want the listeners to know why something can be eligible, but but really only in theory. So if you're a prosecutor, how do you go about deciding whether or not to seek the death penalty, even in the category of where it is eligible? So the first question I would ask you, or the first question you would ask yourself, if you were the district attorney, how good is this case? Factually, how good is it? Do you have DNA? Do you have a confession? Is the confession on videotape? How many witnesses do you have? Do you have the victim's blood all over the clothes or the boots or the hands of the murder defendant? Are your witnesses so credible that every juror, everyone who heard them would believe them beyond a reasonable doubt? How good is the evidence? How good is the case? So let's analyze that under Let's analyze the Murdoch case. I mean, how good factually was the case? Did you have DNA? No. Did you have a confession? No. You had something I think is better than a confession, which is a false exculpatory statement. But hold that thought for a second. We had it, but hold that thought for a second. Did you have videotape? Not of the crime itself. Did you have eyewitnesses? Nope. Did you have blood on his hands, blood on his clothes, blood on his boots? You don't even have a murder weapon. I mean, you may. Guns were introduced that could have fired the fatal projectile, the fatal bullet. So how good is the case in terms of murder cases? The best piece of evidence, and I think the prosecutors would tell you this, the best piece of evidence was twofold. It was Alex Murdoch denying being present at the murder scene, coupled with the reality that he was. So that is not a confession. That is a false exculpatory statement under a theory that innocent people don't lie because they don't need to lie. That's good evidence. False exculpatory statements. I always preferred them over confessions. I thought it was easier for the it's easier to me for a jury to get their head around the fact that innocent people don't lie than it is for a jury to believe that guilty people can't wait to confess to it. Other prosecutors would tell you differently, but my experience, I'd rather have a false exculpatory statement than a confession. So that's what you had. But I told you to hang on for a second. When did you get that? When did you get that piece of evidence? Do you remember? You got it, I think, after the trial began or certainly very close to the time the trial began. You got that evidence. If you got it after the trial began, 
What guarantee do you have in a death penalty case that a judge would allow that into evidence? Because I can tell you right now, judges take a dim view of newly discovered evidence. If you had months and months and months to turn over everything you have to the defense, and you either didn't turn this over, or in this case, didn't have it to turn over, there is no guarantee that a judge would have allowed that into evidence. And I would argue there's less of a guarantee. It's less likely in a death penalty case. Why? Because remember the phrase, death is different. Death penalty cases are different. And this is probably the point you're saying, well, what's different about it? Well, the way the jury is drawn is different. Jury selection, I mean, just start there. Jury selection is different. In normal cases, the judge asks some questions. Do you know the lawyers? Do you know the witnesses? Do you know the defendant? Do you know the police officers? Have you already made up your mind? Have you read about this story? Can you be fair? All of those are questions that have asked that are asked of the entire jury pool. That is not the way it's done in death penalty cases. You start there and then you bring each potential juror into the courtroom. Put him or her in the witness box on the witness stand and you proceed to take the next however long you need to examine that potential juror, not a witness. These are folks that were unlucky enough to have their their number called. So imagine, imagine you got, you know, well, you wouldn't have it in in February or March, but you might have it in the summertime. Imagine you have a school teacher. Because in February, March, uh, judges would let school teachers out so they're out of jury service, so they're not you know, missing school. But let's assume that we have a first grade school teacher in a summertime death penalty case. So what you're going to say is, uh, Madam school teacher, can you tell me your thoughts on the death penalty? Well, Mr. Prosecutor, I've never really thought about it before. Understood. Understood. But we need you to think about it now. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's it's you know, I wouldn't want to give it if the person, you know, wasn't guilty. Well, no, you wouldn't. You wouldn't want to convict someone that wasn't guilty. So you certainly wouldn't want to give them the death penalty. If I knew the victim, maybe I could give it. Well, Madam School Teacher, you realize that if you knew the victim, you wouldn't be on the jury because you couldn't serve on the jury if you knew the victim. And this goes on and on and on, sometimes for hours, trying to figure out whether that juror can both give life and give death. Because if you cannot give life, if you, and and I had a few that said, I'm an Old Testament person, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Take a life, you lose your own. Okay, you're not serving on a death penalty jury. You're not eligible to serve on a death penalty jury. By law, you're not eligible. So you're you're stricken. You're struck. What if you have someone that says, look, my faith just does not allow me uh, to sentence another human being to death. I think that's for God to do. And then you spend hours. The defense attorney really wants that juror, by the way. So the defense attorney is going to spend an hour saying, you mean if someone blew up a bus full of kids, you couldn't give the death penalty? Well, maybe I could. They're trying to make this person death penalty eligible. To be eligible, you have to be able to give both life and death. If you say, 
always death, you can't serve. If you say always life, you can't serve. So really, the only folks that can serve on a death penalty case are folks that can't make up their mind or haven't made up their mind, which is good. It's good that you haven't made up your mind. It may not be good if you cannot make up your mind. I remember one juror, she actually, she should have been stricken in hindsight because um, I knew her and I knew her husband, but she was such an impressive person. The defense correctly viewed her as being fair, and she was. I mean, I knew her, I liked her, uh, I knew her husband, but that would not keep her from doing what she thought was right. What got in the way is she could not answer the question of whether or not she could give life and death. She was a deeply, deeply spiritual woman, and she was struggling with it. So for two hours, we politely, because it's none of our business. It's, it's, it's not a prosecutor's business what somebody's belief on the death penalty is, except if you're called for jury service. And there are no right answers. There are no wrong answers. But we have to have your answer. I mean, we got to know. Can you give life? Can you give death? And if you can give both, then you are eligible to serve. And then we start the jury selection process. So the jury you got in Alex Murdoch's case that came back with a really quick verdict would not have been the jury you got in an Alex Murdoch death penalty case. Totally different jury. Maybe not a single person on Alex Murdoch's real murder trial jury would have made it onto his death penalty. I don't know that, but I guarantee you it would not have been one for one. It would not have been the same jury. So jury selection is different. The trial itself is different in a death penalty case. It's really two trials. The first trial is about guilt. Did this defendant commit murder? All right. So imagine you're serving on a jury. And you know in the back of your mind that this is a death penalty case. I'll bet you, I'll bet you that you are going to have an even higher threshold for what the prosecution proves in terms of guilt. You're going to want to know with absolute certainty that this person committed the offense, as you should, except absolute certainty is not the standard. The standard is beyond a reasonable doubt. It is not 100% sure. But because you know in the back of your mind that this is a death penalty case, you probably or not probably, but maybe you're going to elevate the standard for the prosecution to even get a conviction. And let's assume the prosecution does get a conviction, but the jury has residual doubt. We're 98 percent sure it was him. But, oh, my gosh, I just oh, I don't know. I mean, there is no appeal from death. When you're dead, you're dead. So the residual doubt comes into play during the second trial. So it's two completely different trials. Trial one is, did the defendant commit murder? And if they return a guilty verdict, then you stop and you wait 24 hours. It's called a cooling off period, but you wait 24 hours and then you start a brand new trial on what the proper punishment should be. So let's go back. Let's assume, let's assume that Attorney General Wilson decided this is death penalty eligible. I'm going to seek the death penalty. Are you sure that that financial crime evidence is coming in in a death penalty trial? I'm not. 
I mean, that was the motive evidence. The motive evidence was the storm, that a storm was gathering. And so Judge Newman, I think correctly, but Judge Newman allowed evidence of other criminal conduct, even though he had not been convicted of it, to come in under a theory of motive. I'm not sure it's the same ruling in a death penalty case. So let's assume in a death penalty case, you don't get the video in and you don't get the evidence of financial crime in. And because you don't have evidence of the video or the financial crime that comes in, then maybe Alex Murdoch doesn't take the witness stand. You sure he's going to be convicted? I'm not. So seeking the death penalty makes everything different. The trial is different. Both trials are different. The judges, oh, be careful how I say this. Judges are aware of what's at stake. Let's just put it that way. Judges are aware of what's at stake. And the scrutiny on appeal in a death penalty case is exacting, as it should be. It's exacting. So whatever jump balls you may have gotten in a normal criminal prosecution, you ain't getting in a death penalty case. How about the family? It's really hard to seek the death penalty when the family is splintered or not in favor of it. And trust me when I tell you that, I've had to do it. Half the family doesn't want the death penalty, half the family does. And you got to be in the room with all the family. And they're upset with each other, and they're both mad at you. In this case, I'm not even sure the closest family members even think Alex Murdoch was guilty of murder. So they sure as heck are not going to be in favor of the death penalty. We'll be right back with more of the Trey Gowdy podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. What else makes this not a good death penalty case? The best death penalty cases, in my judgment, the ones where I sought it, The evidence was overwhelming. There was no question about guilt. The only question was, what's the proper sentence for this crime? And one of the ways that I like to show the jury that the proper sentence was death was to tell them that this was really a lifetime achievement award. I mean, you're not giving him death. He earned it. Look at his criminal history. You know, at age 19, he shot into a car and narrowly missed someone, and then he committed burglaries and armed robberies, and he went to prison and got out, and he kept offending. And it really, I had one death penalty case where I think the defendant had 40-something prior convictions. 40. That's a lifetime achievement award. You're not giving him death. He earned it. Contrast that with a lawyer that has zero criminal history. I'm not talking about the financial stuff, because remember, that ain't coming in in a death penalty trial. Jury's not hearing anything about that. It's charged but not convicted conduct. The appellate process is different. And look, I'm not saying that this was a factor. It probably was not a factor, to be honest, and to be fair to Alan and his office. But I'll tell you, no one is being put to death in South Carolina right now. So it's it's an issue uh, with the manner in which uh, the state executes people and access to drugs. And I'm not taking a position on any of that. 
I don't sentence people. The jury does it. And if and when that sentence is carried out is um, that's not up for me to decide. I've done my job. The jury's done its job. And when and if the sentence is carried out is of, of no consequence to me. I don't have a role in that. But the reality is South Carolina is struggling to find a way to lawfully put people to death. So you are risking guilt. You are risking a conviction for a sentence that even if it is carried out in 30 years, you may not have the death penalty in 30 years. So what are you taking this risk on for? Having said that, there are some crimes which just shock the conscience, shock our conscience. And it's the only appropriate punishment. I'm thinking of a case right now in South Carolina that a friend of mine prosecuted. Man drives a car over to his either estranged wife or ex-wife's house with their child in the car, in a car seat, sets the car on fire, knocks on the door so the mother watches her child burn to death. That is a death penalty case. Is this it's a double homicide. It's certainly eligible. It boils down to the facts. Is the guilt overwhelming? Is it completely conclusive? And are you risking a conviction by seeking the Senate? So other questions I've gotten about Alex Murdoch, where is he now? What's the appeal process? Of course, he's going to appeal. Uh, there are two ways to appeal. You can appeal Everything. Jury selection. You can appeal pretrial motions that Judge Newman may have made. You can appeal evidentiary rulings that Judge Newman may have made. Uh, Judge Newman enjoys a phenomenal reputation in South Carolina. And I don't mean just among lawyers. I mean, with appellate judges, too. So we have a South Carolina Court of Appeals and we have a South Carolina Supreme Court. If this had been a death penalty case, it would have automatically gone to the South Carolina Supreme Court. It's not a death penalty case, so it may go to the South Carolina Court of Appeals, and they will evaluate legally whether any legal mistakes were made such that warrant overturning the conviction or the sentence. I see no way in the world the sentence alone will be overturned, and by that I mean uh, the court's not going to say, yeah, he's guilty, but he should not have gotten life. So you can rule that out. I don't think an appellate court's going to say that there were mistakes made, period. And if they do have a different view or think Judge Newman should have ruled differently, I don't think they're going to find that those mistakes you know, impacted the outcome or the verdict. So that's direct appeal. You also have post-conviction relief or habeas corpus for people in the federal system where you complain about your own lawyers. And, you know, Alex Murdoch has the rest of his natural life to, like, think up things he wants to do. So he's going to complain about his lawyers. He's going to probably complain that they told him to take the stand. Uh, he's going to complain that they didn't do this and they didn't do that. So you really you have two appeals. You have the direct appeal. I would not expect much from that. You've got post-conviction relief. Now, keep in mind, he picked these lawyers uh, they they both have really, really good reputations. And uh, and he's a lawyer himself. So if he didn't want to take the witness stand, he didn't have to take the witness stand. And he knew he, he knows that he knew that the judge told him you don't have to take the witness stand. But he chose to do so. But again, he's got the rest of his life to sit there and think up what he wants to do. So you can expect a direct appeal and post conviction relief. I'm, I'm also asked, you know, about prison itself. 
I used to hear, I don't hear it much anymore, but I used to hear this phrase, country club prisons, that prisons were like too nice. Um, I've never been in one of those. They are the coldest, starkest. I don't want to use a religious analogy, but I will anyway. They're like godless. I mean, it is the coldest, starkest place that I have ever been in my life. So the notion that it's a country club or that it's a lot of fun, um, no prison that I've ever been in, maybe I'm going in the wrong ones, but the ones that I went in, either interviewing uh, witnesses or in some instances to sentence defendants, were the coldest, starkest places I had ever been. So he's being processed right now. And by that, um, medical issues, um, education. Yes, the whole world knows he went to law school, but you still have to do this. The director of corrections in South Carolina, the director of the South Carolina Department of Corrections is an old friend named Brian Sterling. Um, And it is the hardest job, I think, in all of law enforcement. You are, you know, handling people who aren't happy to be where they are. You know, you think me at a wedding is hard to deal with. I mean, that's one version of not being happy where you are. Imagine having a facility full of people that are serving very long prison sentences and or life. So you're serving life. I mean, honestly, what incentive do you have to behave? Well, you have to build in some incentives. You have to build in privileges, canteen privileges, uh, access to education programs. I mean, you have to incent good behavior. It's not fair to the prison officials. It's not fair to the employees at the prison to have a bunch of hopeless people who are serving life without parole around you all day, every day. There's no incentive for them not to hurt a guard, not to hurt an officer. So I'll leave all that up to Brian Sterling. Uh, He has a very, very difficult job, but Alex Murdoch is going to start off because he has a life prison sentence and a maximum security prison. I would imagine he's going to start off there if he doesn't have infractions, if he doesn't get caught with a cell phone or breaking prison rules. He may, over the course of time, work his way down to a minimum or medium security prison. But it will be over the course of time. It it won't be anytime soon, I don't imagine. All right, the other question I get is what about the other crimes he's charged with? Uh, and in particular, some of the investigations that uh, came up uh, pre-trial and during the trial. Uh, that's a tough one. You don't want anyone to get away with um, what they've done. You can't add to a life prison sentence. Life means life in South Carolina. It may not be mean life in other places, but it means life here. It's a pine box pardon. You're never getting out. You you will die in prison. So do you want to risk escape by transporting the uh, inmate, the prisoner, back to court every day for a series of crimes for which no time will be added? It's not like he's going to be able to pay restitution. He doesn't have any money. He's not going to have a source of income. On the other hand, uh, people are entitled to their day in court, and it means a lot to them. I had a defendant who was charged with both criminal sexual conduct on a minor and murder, two separate fact patterns, two separate cases. So he's awaiting trial for murder. In fact, it was capital murder. It was a death penalty case. And he also had an allegation that he had committed a terrible terrible crime against a child. 
I decided to try him for both. Uh, but that was to send a signal to him and others that you're going to be tried for what you do to children. In reality, it did not add a moment. He received death. He received the death sentence. In reality, it did not add a moment to his jail sentence, but it mattered to me to do it. I don't know what the U.S. Attorney's Office or the AG's Office, I don't know what they're going to decide. You can't get more than life, but the victim, it may mean something uh, to the victims. And the fact that he's in prison hopefully will make it easier for witnesses that have information about other potential criminal activity to come forward. So as we close up, our justice system is not perfect. There are a thousand things we can point to that, that maybe we could do better here, or there are so many cases from the past that, I mean, I can think of times I don't think the jury got it right. But I'll tell you what, they get it right overwhelming majority of the time. And you just you think about the, the reality of, of how infrequently, or think about it this way, Politics, they struggle to get a majority. They struggle to get 218 in the House. They struggle to get 51 or 60 in the Senate. You think about how hard it is to get 12 people to agree on anything, anything in the world. This day and age, how hard it is. And now think you've got to get 12 people to not only agree, but agree beyond a reasonable our jury system is uh, magnificent, and it is done by ordinary citizens. We don't have professional jurors. It's us sitting in judgment of us, and it is uncanny how often uh, juries get it right. So I will say this in conclusion. That courthouse was built in 1820. In 1920, the Murdoch family began almost 100 years worth of really being the captain of the justice system in that part of my state. And when I say the captain, the prosecutor has enormous, enormous power in South Carolina. Who to charge, what to charge with, how to negotiate, whether to negotiate or whether to plea bargain, what sentence to seek, what case to call. And in what order? The prosecutors used to run the docket in South Carolina. So they got to control the charge, what sentence was being sought, whether to negotiate, when to call the case for trial. Enormous amount of power. And, you know, I'll let other people decide what prestige or prominence is. I, I mean, those to me are compliments. So I'm not sure I would use either of those words to describe some members of the Murdoch family. That was a word used in court. I mean, we used to say influence, power, influence, prominence probably is a benign word. But for 100 years, kind of had their hand on the wheel of justice. Now, I have this image from the trial of Alex Murdoch. He, remember, he said he kept the badge in the console of his car. And it wasn't in the console of the car. When I saw it, it was hanging out of his pocket. He wanted the whole world to know that he had a badge, even though he was like a part-time volunteer prosecutor, got no business having a badge. But that badge, at least to him, and maybe it worked, lets you play by a different set of rules. I mean, he said he wanted, he said he wanted it in case he got stopped for speeding, as if, you know, the badge is going to mean a better outcome for him than it would for me or you. 
that's not a good look for our justice system. But what is a good look is that the justice won. It won a hundred years of whatever word you want to use, power, prestige, prominence, influence, running the show was no match for 12 ordinary citizens that applied the facts to the law and very quickly said, power, prestige, prominence, you're guilty. So you're going to another word that starts with P, prison, the rest of your life. If you got any questions about what happened in South Carolina, the Murdoch trial or our criminal justice system, uh, shoot them to us. Probably the only area where I know enough to actually have a podcast. Uh, I did it for 20 years. I love our justice system. If you have questions about it, comments, concerns, criticisms, if they're really bad criticisms, give them to Mary Langston because she's stronger than I am. But let us know and we'll do our best to answer them. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. I'm Charles Payne. Listen to my Unstoppable Prosperity podcast so I can get you making money right now. Whether stocks are hitting new all-time highs or in freefall mode, opportunities abound. So why are so many potential investors still sitting on the sidelines? In a new season of my podcast, I'm going to get you in the game. After 38 years on Wall Street, I'm ready to impart some lessons and get you invested in the greatest wealth-generating machine in history. Listen anytime, everywhere at foxbusinesspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.